Welcome to Infection and Immunity Evidence Explained, a Doherty Institute podcast. I'm Catherine Somerville, and I'm recording today from my home as Melbourne experiences its fifth lockdown. You might hear construction noise, children's voices, or a dog running up the hallway. I'm sure familiar sounds to many of you. In this episode, in our series on COVID-19, the virus, variants and vaccines, we are chatting with Professor Kirsty Busing, Royal Melbourne Hospital Infectious Diseases Physician and co-lead of the Antimicrobial Resistance and Hospital Acquired Infections theme at the Doherty Institute. Last year, she was at the centre of the Royal Melbourne Hospital's response to the rising COVID-19 infections in healthcare workers. She and her team scrutinised wards to try and identify and close any gaps that may have been allowing the virus to spread so freely. One of the aspects they looked at closely was airflow and examined the impact of portable air cleaners known as air scrubbers on aerosol clearance. Kirsty, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Kath. Now, let's start with painting a bit of a picture of you and your colleagues' experience last year. What was it like when COVID-19 infections started to appear? Well, um, for us at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, we, I work in a ward that prepares itself for emerging infections. So it's something that we feel like we have some readiness for. When the first cases started to happen in what we call the first wave in Melbourne through March and April, we were caring for people on the infectious diseases ward and things were going pretty well. We were using the PPE that that we had practised to use and the, the numbers of patients that we were concurrently managing were quite manageable, you know, maybe five or, or I think we, we got up to close to 10, but it, it wasn't too bad and we thought we had this covered and it was okay. Um, and then the second wave hit and that was in July and August and really there was a rapid escalation in the number of COVID positive patients who were admitted to the hospital and it it was in that context that we had wards that had to, we had to change the whole workflow of the way that our infectious diseases ward was functioning and then we had wards that we hadn't initially intended to be what we call hot, so wards that were managing positive patients, they had to flip uh, and become hot wards. So at the peak, I think overall we managed 525 inpatients who had COVID. At the peak, we had 99 concurrent inpatients. And I think we had six wards that were hot across the Royal Melbourne City campus and the Royal Park campus as well as two suspected COVID wards and our emergency department and ICU on top of that. So it really was sort of dominating what was going on in the hospital for a period of about two months there. And were you surprised when the health, when your healthcare workers started to show infections? I mean, we're talking about doctors and nurses who were trained to deal with Ebola if, if that was to enter the country. Absolutely. We were very surprised. So um, I should say that that we had heard about it happening overseas. So um, we had an awareness that it might start to happen. But at that stage, there was a lot of discussion about whether those staff members were potentially acquiring it outside the hospital in those other countries where we knew that the epidemiology was different. But when it started to happen to us, it was pretty clear from early on that these were likely to be healthcare-acquired infections and the numbers escalated really quickly and it was quite frightening for everybody, if I'm completely honest. Um, these were our best people getting infected. So we, we really felt that the numbers we were seeing were more than what might be explainable from breaches in PPE use and um, 
we needed we, we were going back just as you said in the introduction we were going back and reviewing and reinforcing and asking questions and watching what people were doing every day to try to close gaps we were positioning people on those wards to watch what was happening so how could this be happening and 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 what might we be doing wrong and it was in that context so i think over that first week of the healthcare worker infection starting to happen that we really honed in on aerosol transmission we we realised this had been something that was being debated in the literature, but from what we saw, it was the best explanation for what was going on with our staff. Um, and, and so we sort of uh, had to make some changes to the way that, that we were operating on the wards. And you used theatrical smoke and bubbles to try and get a handle of, of what was happening? Yeah, so, so I guess the first thing is to say in order to contain what was going on in the ward at that time clinically, we did a lot of things. We, we moved to N95 masks, we spaced patients out and we just started to think a little bit more about airflow in, in the way we were positioning patients. I have to say that the lockdown in Victoria was probably the key thing that dropped patient numbers and we got control over what was happening. But then the numbers of COVID patients fell and we were all standing around looking at each other going, what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? So we went across the road to colleagues at the University, um, University of Melbourne, and said to them, people in aerosol science, people in engineering, how can you help us? What do we need to learn? How could we do this differently? And we, we started having an evening meeting um, uh, every Monday evening <laughs> for an hour, just getting together and brainstorming and saying, what do you know about this? What do we know about this? And how can we bring our knowledge together? And they were, they were really terrific meetings. And we honed in on a couple of practical mitigation strategies that might work. And we wanted to test them. So an opportunity presented itself to do some experimentation. And really what happened was that um, in the week between Christmas and New Year, we have every year what we call a low activity period where elective surgery is not happening and one of our wards closes. And it happened that one of those wards was a ward that we had managed COVID positive patients in during the July, August wave and where we had had staff acquisition of infection happen. And so we thought, let's go into that ward and do some experiments to better understand the potential for aerosol transmission in those that particular environment. And so we asked the hospital executive for permission and, and they granted it. And we took a team in of, of researchers. And we, as clinicians, we were telling them what practically was happening. They were looking at that and then trying to, to formulate how they might study it using the, the technology that they have to look at aerosolized particulate matter. And so we did, as you said, some experiments using theatrical smoke. So this is a glycerol-based aerosol that produces particles that are the same size as respiratory droplet, uh, respiratory particles that we might produce from human beings. And so we were filling the rooms with this particulate matter. And the first thing we did was just watch where it went. And what we came to understand was that actually air is moving quite quickly in this in these clinical spaces and it's moving beyond where we expected it might move and we saw that from the patient rooms it was moving quite rapidly into the corridors and across to the nurses stations 
and spreading quite a long distance away. And we could see the difference that opened and closed doors made to the, the to airflow. And then we decided to look at these things called portable air cleaners or air scrubbers, we sometimes call them. They're just portable HEPA filtered devices that you can buy from a retail store. Um, and we put them into the room and we, we looked at figuring out how quickly these devices could clear the air of aerosolized particles, just trying to understand would these be of benefit if our patients were in the room and if they were producing aerosolized particles like this. And really what we discovered surprised us a lot. These portable air cleaners were really, really effective. Um, and in rooms that already had really high turnover of air, really high air exchanges, they still added a lot of value. So they were clearing the air around the patient. And by doing that, they were making sure that the air that escaped from the patient room was also much cleaner. So this particulate matter was keeping staff who might go into that patient's room safer, but also staff who were standing outside that patient's room were also much safer. Um, so, so this was a somewhat novel finding for, um, for clinical space. It, it wasn't a surprise to the aerosol scientists and engineers, they were expecting it. But for those of us who work in the hospitals, these devices are not something that we would ordinarily use. What instances had they been used before? The aerosol scientists you spoke of weren't surprised. Um, they'd used them for bushfire smoke. So things like that. So pollution in air. They, 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 that's what a lot of people in the community might go down to the retail store and buy them for, or pollution that's coming from cars or other things that, that people might worry about. So we were now, we had come to the point where we thought, well, this virus is potentially spreading in particulate matter in air. If these devices clear particulate matter from air, they probably help to clear virus from air. Um, so so that, that was the real learning for us. And, and we uh, also looked at how you might use these devices to protect clinical spaces where staff might congregate. And I should be careful and say we, we tended to not congregate during COVID times. We, we were paying a lot of attention to physical distancing, but we did have nursing staff who went into what we call the nurse's station for, for long periods of time. So we, as part of this experiment, looked at how these air cleaners could protect the nurses' stations as well. And again, they were very effective. They, they could protect the patient room, they could protect the corridor, and they could protect the nurses' station. So this led to a real change in the way we thought. And I have to say that um, it's been really gratifying to watch how people have adopted these air cleaners. And we are using them at the hospital that I work, the Royal Melbourne Hospital, we are using them now. And I know that some other hospitals have adopted them. I know that Hotel Quarantine has, has taken them on. So, so I think there has been a lot of impact from, from this work that we've been able to do, which has been fabulous. What an incredible finding, though. I presume these are quite cheap if you can just go down and grab them from your local hardware store? Yeah, they're quite inexpensive. Um, now, the price of a device depends on its size and it's important that the size of the device is matched to the volume of the room that you're trying to clean. 
that's not a complex thing to figure out, but you do have to apply a bit of thought to that. But yeah, it's a couple of hundred dollars, these devices. And, and so now we have a whole fleet of them um, that we deploy uh, in various wards in the hospital. We've used them in residential aged care. We've used them in a number of settings where there's been outbreaks and our staff have adopted them and actually, you know, talking to them, it, it helps them to feel confident that, that something's being done to keep them safer. So it's something that's, um, I think, you know, been a really great example of, of um, applying knowledge from research uh, and translating it really effectively into practice quite quickly. And I think bringing so many different experts together as well. You mentioned the School of Engineering at the University of Melbourne. You know, they are bringing a new lens to look at this problem than what the clinical people would? Absolutely. We had to learn to speak the same language. So those first couple of weeks when we were having these um, teleconferences, you know, we were each making suggestions that sounded ridiculous to the other group. You know, we we were saying, well, you couldn't do that in a clinical environment. That wouldn't work. And, and, and then we'd make a suggestion and they'd say, no, 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 that's not how we think about aerosols or something. So there was, there was a real to and fro and a building of trust and a building of rapport. And, and then and then actually being able to land this project was the thing we all coalesced around, I think. And it was really efficiently done. You know, we, we had a limited time period. We knew we had a week of time in which that ward was empty. So we, we had to work efficiently together. And the other group I really do want to acknowledge is the hospital engineers. Um, they really got into this. They were very supportive. And without them, we really couldn't have done it either. So I just, I just want to thank them too. Is it something that the technology could, um, you know, sort of be retrofitted to airflow systems in buildings rather than using a device? Yeah, so I guess what you're hinting at there is, is with the recognition of aerosol transmission, people have said we need to pay more attention to indoor ventilation, which I completely agree with. But then I'm left with the question, how? What do you want us to do? Um, what's the practical application of that? Because we can't go and rebuild our, our ventilation systems in hospitals. You know, we, we don't have enough time to do that and it's very expensive. So absolutely you could go and, and do things differently in the way you might design a new hospital building so that it had better, better ventilation. But, but what we were trying to do was say, well, we're stuck with what we've got right now. How can we, how can we retrofit and how can we mitigate in a way that's inexpensive? So I guess I've, I've gone backwards in the way I've answered your question there, Kath, but, but I, I was just, the answer is yes, you, you, in some of these learnings could lead to better design in the long term and, and not have to have these devices plugged into the wall and sitting in the room beside the patient. But we're dealing with what we've got at the moment and, and, you know, we're, we're trying to make our hospitals a safer place for the next time that our staff have to go in and, and um, care for these patients. And I think you touched on it just a while back, but do you and your team feel more prepared in the event of another wave of infections presenting at the hospital? Absolutely. I think, I think to have lived through it once was to have learnt a lot. And even now we watch some of the videos of what's happening up in Sydney, you know, our colleagues in New South Wales, and certainly we feel for them but we also feel like there's a lot we could share with them so that they don't have to make the same mistakes and, you know, they, they can leverage every, everything we went through and start off at a much higher baseline now. So, you know, we're, we're very keen to be, to be sharing our experience. Have you been speaking to colleagues up in New South Wales? 
I guess we've been talking to colleagues from lots of different states and when, when Victoria was going through this in August, there were a couple of occasions where we had um, meetings with larger groups of people. I was involved in one with WA and one with Queensland. Various individual colleagues have been reaching out and asking a few questions. So we've been sharing our guideline for the portable air cleaners with quite a few hospitals um, around the country. It, none of it's rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. But, you know, obviously they're, they're in the midst of something where they're really busy and potentially some of them will be overwhelmed. So anything we can share that, that helps them, we're doing that. And of course, it's just been published as well in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology. So it is out there for the world to see. Yeah, yeah. And that's really exciting. And it's really exciting getting recognition for, you know, the aerosol scientists and the and the engineers who were involved in this too, you know, seeing their work published in, in a way that they can see it instantly having effect. I know they're very excited about that. Thank you, Kirsty, for taking the time to speak with us today. No worries. Thanks, Kirsty's experience is also presented in the Doherty Institute 2020 Impact Report, available on our website. Please go and take a look to read about our research, clinical, public health and teaching successes during 2020, a year that changed life as we know it. To access, visit doherty.edu.au forward slash impact hyphen report hyphen 2020. Thanks to all of you for listening to Infection and Immunity Evidence Explained, a Doherty Institute podcast. The Doherty Institute is a joint venture between the University of Melbourne and the Royal Melbourne Hospital.